Well, it, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters, and today, I always have a little bit of mourning as we come to the end of a series. Today, we come to the final chapter of Job's narrative that's been documented for us. We come to the conclusion of a long description of a man who suffered, a man who has agonized over life and faith and asked big questions about God. Big questions of God in the face of terrible tragedy and well-meaning friends who've taken turns beating him up rather than providing the comfort and the encouragement he needed. You see, like us, Job has doubted and questioned God. When you lose 10 children, when you lose your future, your livelihood and the respect and the relationship with those close to you, you and I might have the same big questions and doubts and fears. God seems far off. Well, unknown to Job, spiritual realities have been at play. God restrained but allowed Satan to attack Job. And this accuser, Satan, had the gall to attack God's very character. He called God a fraud. He suggested that no one really followed after God. No one really has a heart changed by God. So God points to Job, the faithful man. He points to Job as verifiable proof and empirical evidence that God really is at work in the hearts of his people. So Job's life, like our life today, is used by God to display his glory. Our life, Job's life, has the ultimate purpose to point to the goodness, the majesty, the splendor and reality of God, even when we suffer. So we come to the end. The poetic discourse among friends has ceased. The long-winded arguments of chewing the fat on life and theology, that's stopped. God has arrived. God has spoken. God has demonstrated, informed Job that he alone, God alone, knows, controls, operates, and lovingly orders the complexities of this world. God is God, and Job is not. So how will it conclude? How will Job respond? What has been the point of all this suffering? Simply put, our main idea this morning is this. Faithful followers of Christ get him. What we come to find out is that the point of the book of Job is to reorient our thinking in our faith. As we've said multiple times, the story of Job is not about Job, just as our story in life is not about us. Suffering in Job's life and even in ours is used in part to show us that the central figure of our life and all the universe, in fact, is God. Now, going back to the beginning, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And what is an image? If I take a selfie with my phone and I walk around with my selfie stick, as no one here has ever seen me do, if I take a selfie of myself and I show it to you, is that me? Or is that an image of me? It's a representation of me. And in the same way, when you and I are created in God's image, we are to be a reflection 
a representation of his character in our life. People, when they see us, are to in part see something of God. We're made in his image. We are to display that our greatest treasure and desire in this life is to be his image, to be with him, to follow him. This life isn't about us. It's about him. So consider with me how this image is reflected in this final chapter. And read with me, please, Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came with him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter, Jemima, and the name of his second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapak. And in the land all there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. I'll confess, I don't know if I said those daughters' names right. I think I'm close, though. In our passage, first, we have Job's faith in experience. And I get this directly from verses 1 through 6. Job has been listening to God for some time, and, and Job, uh, rather God, has been questioning and humbling Job. What is Job's response? 
worship. Job worships God by declaring and confessing God's worth. He worships in in this confession and this prayer in verses 1 through 6. He worships by elevating God in his mind and heart. He worships by rightly seeing himself as dependent and needy. He worships by trusting in God's character now that he rightly sees God for who he is. And that's worship. Now, I want to hone our attention on two items in these verses that I think will serve us well this morning. Verse 2, look again, says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What is Job saying here, really? Job is confessing that in light of the last four chapters of God asking him questions, remember some of these questions? Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Or Job, are you able to give life and control animals and stars and the working of the universe? Can you? In light of questions like these, Job is saying in this section that everything that occurs, everything that takes place in this life is within the framework, control, and power of God's divine wisdom. God can do all things. And God has purposes that cannot be stopped or changed. Now, this has incredible significance on Job's life and yours, on your life, my life this morning. Job's faith has now grown and expanded in his understanding, and he comes to this conclusion. God is not just sovereign, but he's good. He does all things. He has mysterious purposes, which can include me suffering. Somehow, that is in his control, and it's good still, Job says. God will move and operate in such a way in my life and in the expanse of the universe for his glory to be displayed. So in summary, my suffering, Job says, my suffering is a part of God's purpose. It doesn't feel good. I don't like it. I hurt. I have questions, but I now trust that there are eternal realities and purposes at play, even if I can't see them. But look also again at verse 5. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, Job says. I found another translation that was helpful that said, I admit it, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. Now, Job didn't have the scriptures like you and I do, so his knowledge of God had been passed down orally from other faithful followers of Christ. And also for what he could glean from God's general revelation as he looked around at the world. Job admits that his understanding of God, it was reliant on other people. But now, he's lived it. It's no different for you and I today. There are many things that we know to be true of God in the scriptures, but we know them in an academic way, perhaps. Whether we've poured over the scriptures or like Job, someone has faithfully communicated to us and taught us about the God of the scriptures. 
there's still a difference between the knowledge that we make mental ascent toward in our mind and the knowledge that we've experienced. I'm going to mourn, I mean celebrate the Vikings later this afternoon. And they may have a sign up that says, you see this in stadiums, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Mm, Love John 3.16. It's one thing to be told that God loves the world. It's a whole other thing to experience the love of God poured out into your heart and soul. Not just an academic knowledge about some things about God, but you've lived it. You've experienced it. So perhaps you are here today and you're considering Christianity. Many of you have been invited, maybe by a friend. You're searching for truth. You've been dragged here by your parents. Regardless, you're here. Is it possible that your understanding of God may be more informed by what well-meaning people have told you. It's possible. Maybe your understanding of God is colored by how you've suffered, how your life has played out, and by unmet expectations in your life. And perhaps, like our man Job, God is working and leading in your life in such a way that you would come to an end of yourself that you would come to an end of your incomplete ideas of who God is, and you would see Him for who He truly is. And if this is you, if you're considering Christianity and this is you, I'm glad you're here. This is a good place to wrestle with those kind of questions. Well, others of us who are faithful followers of Christ, maybe we've followed God like Job for year upon year upon year. And maybe you've even perceived something of the Bible and you have a a measure of knowledge from reading or sitting under faithful teaching for years or doing your own study. Is it possible that we also need to experience what Job says in verse 5? I think it is. Is it possible that you don't know the God of the Scriptures? That we, we don't know Him as accurately as we think we do. Is it possible that our circumstances and preferences have interfered with how we see God? Do we see Him as clearly as we think? Do we know Him in experience? Like Job has now in verse 5. See, God calls us, brothers and sisters, to learn from Job's example. To have a faith lived out in experience that rightly worships God and knows God, not in theory, but in practice. Not just on Sunday, but every day. Job's faith is now centered on this. I get him. I get him in a fuller way. I love and am loved by God. I get him. What a wonderful conclusion to come to. Well, next we see also Job's trust in relationships. Now, we see this play out, I think, in a really unique way in verses 7 through 9. These are, I think, astonishing verses. Job's knuckle-headed friends get rebuked and corrected. They are told that they have to do a really humbling thing. They admit 
and they have to confess their sin. They have to confess that their thinking about God's character and their attacks on Job has just been wrong. They have to, in verse 8, take animals to Job, confess their sins, sacrifice them, and ask Job, hey, we're sorry, will you pray for us? We were wrong. And Job does pray for them, verse 9. These verses, I think, affirm a few things. Job was truly innocent all along, regardless what his friends thought. Job's friends were wrong about God and Job. Job was mostly right about how he viewed his situation and God. But I think very importantly, we see in these verses that God values relationships. Can you think back to some of the things that Job's friends said to him in the early chapters? They essentially told Job that his ten kids died because he's a sinner. If that's not a nasty thing to say, they told Job that his kids died, his world blew up, he's broke, he's suffering physically, and his marriage is in shambles. And they told Job that he deserved worse. Now, here at the end, Job is vindicated by God, and these friends were clearly in the wrong. They have to admit to God and to Job that they were, in fact, poor friends. It's quite remarkable that God's first order of business, after Job has responded, after he's confessed and prayed, God's first order of business is to get Job and these friends to have their earthly relationships settled and reconciled. These verses are a reminder that the whole of Scripture is in stark contrast to our individualistic bent that we have in life today. Lakewood, there is no such thing as a just me and God kind of Christianity. Faithful followers of Christ live in community, and God is committed to having his people have unity. Yeah, even messed up friendships like these one. God is committed to healing and the restoration of relationships, even well-meaning friends who ended up being something of an enemy of sorts to Job. So here in these verses, God's first act is to bring about sorrow and repentance to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and to allow these friends to be reconnected with Job. And let me, I didn't say this in the first service, so you're getting this extra for free, by the way. I, you know, it just came to me even now. Isn't it remarkable that it's God who deals with the friends? It's God who goes to these three friends and says, let me convict you. You've been wrong. Go back to your friend. Was it Job who came and said, told you so, told you, you were wrong, I was right. How often do we do that in our own relationships? We think we have to be the one to bring about God's conviction in someone's life. But rather, God did it. Because God cares about our relationships. And we spend a lot of time scheming and manufacturing ways to make someone feel guilty and for them to repent. Maybe we need to pray that God would turn their hearts. 
So you might ask a very normal question. How is Job able to forgive someone who has hurt him so deeply? Some of us have scars like that. Humanly, it is impossible. We're not able to forgive others when they've wronged us so painfully. But Job is a changed man. He himself had to ask for forgiveness. He was humbled by God. Job had to admit that he was a sinner. Job had to admit that he didn't see it right. He was the one back in verse 6 who had the reality check, who had to repent in dust and ashes. See, Job was able to forgive his friends as they repented to him because Job first had to be forgiven by God as he repented to the Lord. Even still, I think this whole restoration business is downright amazing. And perhaps it's a needed reminder to you and I that God is still in the business of restoring fractured relationships. If you have been wronged like Job, perhaps part of the answer is that we too need to get right with God and trust that God will deal with the other party. Job's prayer for his friends turned enemies, turned friends again. That prayer is just a shadow, a foretelling of another example of this kind of prayer. You see, thousands of years would pass and the God-man Jesus would come to earth. And, and he taught his faithful followers of Christ to turn the other cheek and to pray for those who harm you. He would teach and live a perfect life, and he would take that perfect life and become the better Job, the fulfillment of Job. Jesus was truly the innocent sufferer who died on the cross to pay for the sins of his people, people who had become his enemies. And Jesus, this innocent sufferer, as he was dying on that cross, as he was bearing the punishment that sinners deserve, he prayed a prayer. Perhaps much like Job's prayer. And this is his prayer in Luke 23. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus prayed for the restoration of people who had turned on him. Jesus' heart, even in his own suffering, is to see fractured relationships restored. His final prayer on the cross is that fractured relationships would be restored. Not just human relationships, but others' relationship to God. So Job's prayer in our passage and Jesus' prayer is an act of worship in the midst of our suffering. Trusting God to work in relationships. Well, may the Lord help us worship and trust God to work in our relationships. And in our hearts, as he did with Job and his friends. Lastly, we have Job's life in continuation. This last point covers the final verses of Job's, uh, his narrative, his story in verses 10 through 17. And in God's kindness, Job's fortunes are restored, the text says. Job prayed and forgave his friends, and then blessing was given to Job. Not because Job earned it or deserved it, but because God gives lavish good gifts to his children. 
Job's family, who had abandoned him, showed up for a party. And like any religious folks, they had a potluck and they celebrated. Now, I want you to think back and remember Job 2. In the very beginning, after all this disaster, Job and his wife had an interaction where Job's wife was struggling to understand God's character. She, too, had lost those 10 kids and the livelihood and the fortune and all of it. And she was now watching her husband suffer. Job's words and his loving reminder to her in chapter 2 came out like this. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? What Job voiced in chapter 2, what he learned and experienced through the entirety of this narrative, especially as God showed up and answered Job, he learned that God is sovereign and good. He learned that God is totally in control of the good things that come and the evil things that come. He learned that God mysteriously allows disaster and evil for his glory and for our good. Job learned that God is God and we can trust him with however life plays out. But as we come here at the end, verse 11 seems to indicate that his family got it too. They showed real care and sympathy for their brother who received evil and disaster in life. And God used these brothers and sisters to comfort Job. Job and his family never did receive, at least with what we're given, they never received any kind of explanation for the disaster that came. God never explained the heavenly court meeting with Satan in chapter 1. Job and his family only knew this, that God was God. And that he uses our lives for his glory and our ultimate good. Now, verse 10 says that the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. It seems he had double the support with his family, double the wealth, double the livestock, double the 401k, and double the years. Commentators point out that the beautiful daughters... Sharing in the inheritance points to the generosity and the overflow of Job's wealth. It was also pointed out to me this week that Job's giving of his inheritance to his daughters was very counter-cultural to his day and context. Dads didn't do that. Could it be, could it be, that when we see God, when we get him, when he changes us, when he blesses us, could it be that we're called to live counter-cultural lives just as Job did? Lives of generosity and service, lives of sacrifice and holiness, lives of true love, worship, peace, and kindness, lives that are distinctively Christian. It's also noted in verse 16 that there's a connection to Psalm 90, verse 10, that says this. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. We've got some strong people here. Writers suggest that perhaps Job's 140 additional years aren't literal. And that's, that's an argument you could make. He probably would see more than just his sons and their sons throughout 140 years. 
But rather, some argue it's a Hebrew way to say that Job lived double the life, double the fulfillment, double the joy. So whether it's a literal 140 years or it's a picture of a double blessed life, it doesn't matter. Verse 17 says that he lived full days. What a kindness of God. Notice how the narrative concludes. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Now, we would almost expect a grand story like this to follow the pattern of fairy tales and fictional accounts of our heroes gone by. The story should end, and he lived happily ever after. But this is no fairy tale. And what's not shared but implied is the very natural reality of living in this world. Job and his wife had a restored relationship and a restored life. But it was still life. All those livestock, that was work. And I bet some of them got sick and died. And on a cold, frigid Minnesota morning, they had to go take care of them. I mean, I assume Minnesota is the holy land. All that estate that Job had, he needed help. He had to manage workers who had their own lives. All those kids that were given to him again, well, he still likely prayed for them and asked God to protect their hearts and their decisions. Life still had its difficulties, but he had God. More intimately, more real because of the terrible tragedy that he had suffered. And then, Job died. And as we pull back and take the 30,000-foot view of his life and death, we see a couple things more clearly, I think. These 42 chapters of Job are a slice of his life. Just a slice. His suffering was real and terrible and life-changing, but life continued on. He continued on. His suffering was for a season. Yes, an extended season. But my friends, that suffering had an end date. Sometimes for us, that end date comes quickly. And for others of us, the end date of our suffering comes when we join Christ in heaven. But it does end. And the life we've been given continues as we journey by through faith. Job's death also reminds us again how Job points to Christ. Job was the innocent sufferer, wrongly accused, attacked by his friends, prayed for those who hurt him. Oh, but Jesus, so much more. Here's how one writer commented. Job's suffering was only for his own behalf. And Christ's suffering being on the behalf of all his people. As Christians, thanks to Christ's suffering and conquering of the grave, we can be glad that even the end of our stories will not end with a merely a final he or she died. That won't be our story. But rather, we can hope for heaven. We have hope for the resurrection and the return of Christ. And when he comes, when we enter into his presence, we will say with Job, we get him. Faithful followers of Christ get him. 
the streets of gold, the answered prayers, all the kind gifts that you've received in this life, you won't care because you'll have him. Let me end with a quote. I hate finishing this series, but got to end on a good one. And I found this wonderful quote that summarizes the book of Job perfectly for us. Here it is. What a book! What a book! And what a Savior! Job's journey of suffering in Jesus' life shows us that God can and does triumph over evil ultimately. And so we can trust Him. We can trust Him as we look at creation. We can trust Him as we look at the history of salvation. We can trust Him as we look at His written revelation in Scripture. We can trust that He will glorify what is stronger than hate and evil and suffering and death. And that He will do so through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom all glory and honor and praise and adoration is forever due. Would you pray with me? Father, that is our prayer. That we would look at this narrative and say, what a Savior. God does change hearts. He does meet us in our circumstance. And while, Lord, it may be easy for us to say that on a Sunday morning, we ask by the Spirit of God that you would enable us on a Monday morning tomorrow to say, yes, I get him. Despite what my world looks like, I can trust in his sovereign and good plan for my life. I can trust that like Job, pain will come, but when it does, he will be near. Pain will come, but that pain has an end date. So Lord, for those of us who've suffered deeply, for those of us who have lots of suffering yet to come in this broken world, would you help us to be a people who cling to Christ? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.